Good morning. I consider it to be a, a privilege to be able to be here this morning. Um, I, but I honestly feel very, very incapable of such. But uh, uh, nevertheless, I believe, I, I think a lot of times when I'm sitting here about what Jesus said, he said, he said, I'm the vine. He said, you are the branches. And I'm reminded of that very often. For he said, he that abideth in me and I in him, the same would bring forth much fruit. But without me, you can do nothing. And uh, if there's anything that I do know, is that I can't do anything without the Lord. We can stand up here and say things and maybe even say things that are true, but I believe it has to be accompanied by the Spirit of God. It has to be seasoned in order to penetrate into the hearts where it would be needful. And this is going to be different. This is more history than it is a sermon. And uh, I'm thankful for our history. Uh, I've always been very reluctant to use the word proud. Uh, And I've said it a lot of times, and don't misunderstand me, I am not proud that I am a Baptist. But I am very humbled. I am very humbled to be a Baptist. And I know very little about history, but the more that I learn about history, the more humbling it is to me to acknowledge what our forefathers went through that we could have this today. We went on a, I've been on three or four different historical tours, church historical tours, and me and my wife went on another one back, back in the summer. And uh, we went up into the New England states. I had some addresses of some of the old first churches and some of the cemeteries of them old brethren up there. And, and uh, uh, while we were up there, we drove many, many, many miles. We actually flew into Boston and got a rental car, and we, we drove almost 3,000 miles on that car in a couple of weeks. Um, and uh, while we were out traveling and from place to place of these old churches, no cemeteries, um, many times we'd be asked a question that would confront people and talk to them. They'd, they would, uh, they'd ask us, well, where are y'all from? And if I talked to them very long, and I told them, I said, uh, Tennessee, they'd say, um, we figured that out. <laughs> dialects, I guess. Uh, and then a lot of times they would ask, we'd be asked the question, well, where, where are you headed from here? And we would tell them Devon, Pennsylvania, or whatever. So in our travel, a lot of the times, my wife would be sitting over there with her telephone, and we wouldn't even know where we was at other than GPS. But sometimes she would ask that phone, where are we at? And they would tell us, you're in Grove, Connecticut. Uh, I say that to say this. We need to better understand where we come from. To more assuredly know where we're at for the sake of where will we be tomorrow if God allows it. For the sake of these little children. It's good to know where we come from. So um, I I do desire an intercede prayers. I want to say this before I get too serious I guess but uh, I, I taught on this at our homecoming, and Brother David Swinnell, he, uh, he come to me after I taught, and he said, can you do that again? And I didn't tell him, but within myself, I thought, Brother David, I just barely got through it as it was. And, uh, but I said, I said yes, I, I probably, probably can. And uh, then uh, I ran into Sister Kim last week, his daughter. And after I ran into her, I got to thinking about it, I thought, you know, it talks about uh, the next, the, the, the sins of the fathers, that the punishment comes down to the next generation. Well, Sister Kim had uh, said something about the Bible, the history lesson, and I said, yeah, I said, it's, you know, a whole lot I'm going to put in a nutshell. I'm really concerned about it. So Sister Kim may not knew it, but she just became my scapegoat. She told me, she said, uh, you take all the time you need. <laughs> So, uh, church, when I get long-winded, if so, 
You can look at Sister Kim or Brother David, either one you want, but I'm going to be like Adam. It ain't my fault. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with a little, little laughter in the Lord's house. Um, but, uh, but in all seriousness, I do, I do desire an interest in your prayers. Um, and what I'd actually taught on, whenever you talk about church history, there's, that's a broad area. But what I'd actually taught on and was asked to teach on actually somewhat Hilltop's lineage. And, uh, and all we're going to do is just barely skim the very, very surface of this thing. So you pray for me that I can keep from diving in at certain points that we can get through this pretty quick. And I just want to barely skim the surface of it. And I pray that uh, you would be able to, to get something out of it. Uh, if you have your Bibles, we want to turn to Revelation 12. We want to read that chapter. It's about 17 verses. And while you're turning over there, uh, in case I don't get to it, I want to, I want to give out just a couple of definitions. Um, whenever, whenever you read where Jesus had told Peter, he said, up on this rock, Shall I build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it? Jesus was having reference, of course, to himself as being that rock. And whenever uh, he told Peter in another place that, that he was going to call him Cephas, and which means stone. And if you look up the definition of stone, there's a difference. The definition of a stone, it is a piece of the rock. But just as 2 Samuel 2 and 22 says, the Lord is our rock. So when I refer maybe to the church as being the stone or the individual, we are, we are pieces of the stone that was hewed out of the rock. So Jesus is the rock. And we, Peter even tells us that we're lively stones to build up a spiritual house. So local assemblies are more of pieces of stone and individuals as well. But Jesus is the rock. So um, I just want to make sure I sort of get that across. I, I don't want you to misunderstand something I may say and not clear it up. But when Revelation 12, and I know I've heard it preached a little bit different and, and it don't break the doctrine, but I am completely convicted and convinced that Revelation 12 is having reference to the journey of the congregation of the Lord. And as I read through this, the first five verses is having reference to the congregation of the Lord in the Old Covenant. And then when you get up there about verse five, then it picks up the congregation being formed into, into the Lord's church that he set up and established while he was here. And then the remainder of it is concerning the church, the elect lady, the espoused bride of Christ. So you bear that in mind as we read through this. When it speaks about the woman, it's speaking about the congregation of the Lord. Revelation 12 and, the, and 1. And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, and the moon was under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she, being, in, being with child, cried, travailing in birth, and pain to be delivered. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads, uh, ten horns, and seven crowns upon his head. And his tail drew out a third part of the stars in heaven, and he cast them down to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to deliver, for to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations, with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up unto God, unto his and to his throne. Now, just very briefly, this is speak. We know that it was Mary, the virgin, particularly that God had chosen, and He overshadowed her with the Holy Ghost. But Mary was out of the of the Israelites. She was an Israelite. So, on a whole, what this is speaking about is not. It, uh, uh, John is not pinpointing Mary, but he's basically talking about out of the congregation of the Lord is going to come the Messiah. And of course, particularly, it would come, come through Mary. So, and it talks about how that Satan or the, uh, was there ready to devour the child as soon as it was born. And we don't want to get into all that. We know even, even Herod, you know, 
uh, sought to, to kill Jesus when he heard he was born and he wanted the wise men to refer back to him. Uh, Tell me where this, this, you know, you go find uh, this, this uh, uh, baby and uh, speaking about Jesus and says, do you come back and tell me where it's at that I too may go worship? Well, we know exactly what his plan was. He was going to kill him. And, of course, God prevented all that. So just got to skim the surface. But, but Jesus was born. And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child then was caught up into God and to his throne. And then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared of God that they should feed her there a thousand two and three a, a thousand two hundred and three score days and there was uh, war in heaven Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon fought against his angels and prevailed not neither was their place found any more in heaven and the dragon uh, uh, was cast out the old serpent called the devil and Satan was deceived the whole world he was cast down to the earth, not hell, but he was cast down to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accuses them before our God day and night. And they had overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of of their testimony, and they love not their life unto death. Therefore rejoice, ye heavens, and ye that dwell in them, but woe unto the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. And when the dragon saw that he was cast down to the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child, and to the woman then were given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness into her place where she is nourished for a time and times and a half a time from the face of the serpent. And the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. And the earth helped the woman and the earth opened her mouth and was swallowed up the flood which the dragon had cast out of his mouth. And the dragon was wroth with a woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And that's reading that entire chapter and the last verse said that he went to make war with the remnant of her seed uh, which keep the commandments of Jesus Christ and uh, church, I don't think it's needful to tell you but that warfare is still to this day going on. Between Satan and the elect lady, the church that, that upholds Jesus, that warfare will continue until the good Lord himself comes back, and when he comes back, he is going to put Satan in his place. Amen. Satan, right now, is going to and fro, up and down the earth, seeking whom he may devour. And he's doing everything in the world he can do to prevent the plan of salvation to be spread to every creature. And, and uh, uh, but when Jesus does come back, right now he's going to and fro, but when Jesus comes back, he will put him in his place. And his place has done been prepared for him, and it's coming. And he knows it's coming. So what his intention is to rob God of glory, and the most glorious thing in the eyes of God out of all of the creation and all of the splendors of everything that God has created, when God created in those six days, whenever the day that he created man and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man become a living soul, he looked upon that day and it wasn't just good, but he said that day was very good. Very good. Do you realize what you are unto God the Father? You, we, the souls of individuals is the very most precious thing out of all the glory and all the splendor that God has ever created. So Satan will do everything. He's went to make war with the ram and her, her seed, which keep the commandments and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So we need not to expect anything less from Satan. Paul says that when we do good, he said then evil is going to be present with us. Amen. So we have to hold on. We've got these little children and these babies that you and I chose to bring into this world. These children didn't come into this world by their own choosing. You and I chose to bring them into this world 
And if we bring them into this world, it is our utmost, our utmost responsibility that we get them to the Lord. Amen. So we never need to give up on the battle. We bring them into this world, we've got to get them to Jesus. There's no question about it. But um, anyway, I want, I want to get on into some of this. And um, we talked about how that uh, uh, it, the first four or five verses is having reference to the congregation of the Lord. And y'all pray for me that I can, that I can slow down on some of this because this is more of a teaching. Um, but it says that um, uh, in verse 5, And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up into God and to his throne. Now we know that that's talking about when Jesus was born. When Jesus was born, he was not just merely to be the Messiah or the Savior just of the nation of Israel. But, but he uh, was going to be the Savior of the entire world for whosoever and all that would call upon him and believe him. But he is truly the Savior of all of the spiritual Israel. When you get saved, when you are truly blood-bought and born again, according to the Roman letter, we become spiritual Jews. We are the spiritual Israel, the chosen generation. So the Savior was going to come for the entire world, but it was coming through a little bitty nation of Israel. And Satan fasted his eyes upon Israel all the way up until their they were the first chosen, were they not? They were God's chosen. You know what their job was? To bring the Messiah into the world. They were his chosen Israel. And, and she accomplished that. She brought the Savior into the world. And Peter says, now we as the Gentiles that were grafted in, as the elect lady, we are the chosen generation. And what our responsibility is, is there is a cross that Christ bore and he expects his elect lady to bear that cross until he returns. So we have, not as an obligation, but we are to have an unction. We are to have a love to be able to bear that cross and to hold him up before our children. He say, if you don't, who will? Who will? If they don't hear the truth here, where will, they, where will they hear it? But when Jesus was born, and uh, again, just try to get through this, but he, when he was 30 years old, he began his ministry. Jesus preached for three and a half years, and when he first started preaching, one of the first things he did, he went up on top of a little hill, a little mountain, and when he got up there, he chose to him whom he would, and he set up and he established his church kingdom in his personal ministry. Amen. He set the church up. He said, I'm not waiting for him to become my king. He has already got a kingdom and he is already the king. Amen. It said that whenever the, that he was to come, he was to come after the order of Melchizedek. And if you was to read the Hebrew letter, Melchizedek was not only the high priest, of Salem, but, but simultaneously, the very same time, he was also the king of Salem. So, so Melchizedek was both king and priest at the same time. And Jesus, when the Messiah came, he come after the order of Melchizedek. He is not only right now, he is not only our high priest making intercession, but he is also already our king. And he has a kingdom. And the local assemblies make up the church kingdom. And Satan has completely got his eyes focused upon the church. He'll do anything he can do. You know, it's sort of like an old pack of lions. You watch some of these uh, shows on television, and you'll see a pack of lions. And, of course, you know what the prey is, the, li the little young ones. What does that pack of lions do? They get the old mama's attention over here. When they can get her attention, then one of them comes around and snatches up the little one. We are losing our children Amen. because Satan, there's too many battles that's being lost. The victory's not been won. But every lost individual is a battle that's to be won over to the Lord. And we are, admit it or not, losing too many battles. Amen. Too many. 
But he set up his church. And when he set up his church, uh, he established her. And he didn't just walk off and leave her. He, he nursed her, her for three and a half years. He, he fed her. He taught her. And then uh, before he went back, the church at one time, over in Matthew 24 and Luke 21, you'll find that, that they, was, they was there in Jerusalem, and he was there with his disciples, which was the church. And, and they were showing him the temple. And Jesus looked at the temple and he told them, he said, he said there's coming a day, he said that, that there won't be one stone left up on top of the other. And they marveled at that. They couldn't comprehend. So after they got him off to the side, they asked him, they actually asked him three questions, but we're just going to address the one. They said, when will, when will these things be? When, when shall it be that Jerusalem's going to be destroyed, that one stone won't be left up on top of the other? And he told them in, in Matthew 24, <coughs> he said, and again, he's not speaking to, to Jerusalem, and he's speaking to his church. He said, when you shall see the abomination of desolation that's spoken of by Daniel the prophet, and what he basically said, to know that desolation is now at hand. And he said the very same thing pretty much in Luke's account. If you look in Luke 21, he said, when you shall, whenever you shall see the enemy camping around Jerusalem, know that desolation is now at hand. Jesus taught the church this. All the different teachings. We, you know, it's recorded in the Gospels, a lot of the teachings that he taught to the church. But there's so much more, maybe, that's not even in, written that he taught. But amongst all of this, he foretold them that there was coming a time that, that the Rome was going to come and completely destroy Jerusalem. And you know what happened in 70 AD? When was that? 40 years after he had told them. Forty years later, what happened? Here come the enemy. They started camping, and you know what? There was some of the some of them that, that was there that remembered. They remembered the warning <coughs> Jesus had told them. And see, when he told them that, I, I believe with everything within me, they kept preaching that among everything else. They kept the warning up that whenever this is going to happen, to know to flee, because he expressed an urgency. That when they see the enemy coming, he, he told them, he said, you get out of there. He said, if you're on top of the house, don't, don't go take your suitcase. He said, if you're out in the field, flee. And there was such an urgency that, that he was expressing to the church to be able to get out of there. And, and 40 years later, when it started happening, you know the remnant that was saved? Those that believed the report. They're the only ones that were spared. The ones that believed the report. And I pray today that people would believe the report. But then it says that there, that next verse, in verse 6 and 7, it said then that then she had to flee. And said that she had to flee and she had to go and hide out for about 1,250 years. He told her in, in Matthew 24 and in Luke's account, both accounts, he told them, he says, you flee into the mountains. He wasn't talking about getting out of the city limits. If you look where they had to flee to, they had to flee up into the Alps. And if you look geographically from Jerusalem to the Alps, say the Alps was off up in the, uh, Germany and Bohemia and, and uh, uh, Switzerland and, and all, Poland, France. If you look geographically on the map and just say Jerusalem is off over here, and then you got the Great Alps in France and Switzerland. And it's way up here. It's, it's northwest is what, the way they had to travel. They had to travel northwest. And you know what the distance was? Over 2,000 miles. I don't want you to think about that lightly. 2,000 miles on foot. You see, when they come in, they was going to completely slaughter Jesus even told them in Matthew's account, that 24th chapter, he even told them that there, at that day, that there was going to be a tribulation like it never been, nor never would be again. They was going to completely slaughter. It, it was going to be a holocaust. So he chased them. I mean, the, the churches had to flee. And when they fled, they had to travel over 2,000 miles to get up to a place that he had prepared for them 
and that was up in the Great Alps, up around uh, to the east of France, and, and on up into Germany and places of that nature. And if you look at, uh, if you study about the, those Alps, they're a, they're a mountain range of about 750 to 800 miles long, huge mountain range. But, but the church on a on a whole hid out up there for 1,260 plus years. Now, don't, don't misunderstand. There were churches scattered in other places as well. And we've got a church uh, over in, um, uh, over in uh, Wales, by the name of Hillcliff, that supposedly was there in 987. I don't know the exact history of that, but according to historians, it was already there in 987. There was churches scattered, but I'm talking about the very bulk of the church. The majority of the churches actually made that flight, and they hid out all up in those Alps. And in 1260 years, they kept growing. You see, there was coming a time that was referred to as the Dark Ages. And God foreknew that. So God took them and, and tucked them in up the hills and the cliffs and he hid them out for 1,260 plus years. Then, after, and, and I want you to think about that. I, I think I mentioned this at Hilltop, but 2,000 miles on foot. I want you to just think of this. Uh, I, I looked it up from Lafayette. A lot of you familiar with Panama City, Florida. A lot of those take the kids down. Did you know from here to Panama City is about 500 miles? 500 miles. Can you imagine walking on foot to Panama City? Sort of hard to grasp that. Well, that's just 500. Then, then walking back. There's half of their journey. It would have been like walking to Panama City and back twice. And some of them got there quicker than others. Some of them probably didn't make it. But when they did, God tucked them in the cliffs and hid them out up there. And then finally, whenever you, you read over, and uh, it's a song of Solomon. I don't remember. It's about the second chap chapter. After 1260 years, we had 70 AD when he destroyed them when they had to flee into the mountains. Then after that, he hit them out for, for at least 1,206 years. And then what he done, he started calling them out. And you'll read over the Song of Solomon in the second chapter where he told me, he said, come out from the cliffs. Come out from the secret places to come out from the rocks. And they began trickling. Now, this didn't happen overnight. This didn't happen in one year. But after 1,260 years, as he took them away during the Dark Ages and spared them from that persecution, they began trickling out. And as they did... They started coming down and they started coming westward. And as they did, they would come down into the foothills of, of France, uh, Switzerland over there. And they, they come down, there's a lot of history on, on the valley of Piedmont. And one of, the, one of the things that caught my attention, the valley of Piedmont, uh, that was one of the places that God really manifested himself to them with all this that was going on, that he was with them still. You remember how it talks about he's the Rose of Sharon? The Rose of Sharon. Sharon was, was, a, was the plains uh, down in Israel over close to the Mediterranean. It was the plains. And on that, on that, in that area of Israel grow all kinds of these, the roses. And, and they knew that he was the, the Rose of Sharon while they was in Israel. But then all this time frame, then when they got up there and they got down to the Valley of Piedmont, you know what grows in the Valley of Piedmont? The lilies. The lilies of the valley. And when they saw them, it was a manifestation that God was still with them because he was not merely just the rose of Sharon back in Israel, but even in the valley, he is the, the lily of the valley. And I don't know how it is with you all, but most of the time for me, God manifests himself much more real to me in my valleys than he does when I'm on the mountain. Amen. And uh, so those times are good for us. But anyway, the church then started trickling over and gravity came over and through the valley of Piedmont, uh, got on over into Britain and, and England. And then whenever a lot of them got over to Wales and then they come up on uh, the great Atlantic coast and they gone just as far as they could go. When they got to the coast, that they could go no further west. And uh, it's a little bit like it was whenever the children of Israel had come out of bondage. Only that time, God led two million people out of bondage just in uh, just a few days. But when they got to the Red Sea, you remember what happened. God made a way, 
because they went far as they could go, and he parted the waters, and they went across. And if they had been obedient, if they believed, they could have went straight into the promised land within two weeks. But because of unbelief, unbelief, they, they journeyed and they dwelt in the wilderness for 40 years. And then after 40 years, when they finally did believe the report, they come to the Jordan. What did God do again? He parted the waters. They went across into, into Jordan. And Jordan was a promised land unto his people. It was a land of milk and honey. They found it to be just exactly as good or better than what they anticipated. But they had to take it. It was theirs for their taking. And they, they were some battles that had to take place. But they were victorious in every one of those battles as long as they were obedient to the Lord. Same way with the church today. And same way of what happened here. When the church, the elect lady, the bride of Christ to be, when she had got over to Wales and got over to the great Atlantic and couldn't go no further, what did God do? He granted her the wings of an eagle that she might be able to fly into the wilderness to where, uh, for, where God had prepared for her that she would be nurtured for a time and times and a half a time from the face of the serpent. That verse where he granted her the wings, I'll go to my grave believing it was none other than American soil. This land was set up and it was established as a refuge for the Lord's church, for his people. But, but it was for our taking. It had to be established. Uh, when they first got here, you'll find out they run into problems just, just the same way it was when they, when they crossed over the Jordan. But, but America is just as great of a benefit to the church today as the land of Canaan was for the Israelites then. I believe this is a land of promise. And what scares me is what though are we doing with it? We're losing it. We're losing it. Uh, when, uh, when you get out to the very first church, and I know some may see this different, but, and I'd be glad to talk to anybody about my views. I'm not argumentative. I, I won't argue with nobody. Uh, and, and this is history. Let me say this. What I'm talking about today is history. History's got gaps. It may have errors. But I'm glad that there is some good history that can go along with the Bible. Uh, so it's good to know a lot of, a lot of uh, history. But, but uh, the very first church that was actually set up and established in America, a man by the name of John Clark, came over here in 1637 and, uh, and he landed on the, on the coast or on the bay of Boston. When he got here, he, he was a Baptist preacher. When he got here, the very first thing happened to him, he got in some trouble with a standing order because what was over here in Boston was the congregational denomination which believed in the infant baptism and they didn't believe nothing to do with an experimental knowledge of being saved. So when he arrived in Boston, the first thing that happened to him, he got in trouble. So when he did, he took and he led, he led a group of people out of Boston. And they first went up to New Hampshire. And then they circled back down and they came down to what today we, we call Rhode Island. When he got to Rhode Island, he understood and he was assured that he was out of the jurisdiction of Massachusetts. So, having done so, he set up there, they established the church, I believe, in the early part of 1638, in the winter months, and they, they tarried there for six years in Rhode Island. Six years later, 1644, what they did, they picked up and they moved on into Rhode Island, a little bit deeper, over into Newport, and there they, they set up and it became known as the Newport Baptist Church, 1638, being the very first Baptist church in America. And I don't know about you, but that is special to me. That is special. Now there's a lot of avenues. A lot of churches came over here already in church capacity. There's one that came over in 1701. They, was in, they, they come from Wales. They come as a church. They come over here and set up in Delaware. The Welsh Baptist Church. A Great Valley Baptist Church in 1711. When they left Wales, they was already a church. They come over here and they set up in Pennsylvania. So there's a lot of avenues. 
A lot of churches come different ways, but we're talking about the very first church in America. 1638, the very first church in America. And then in 16, I'm going to just try to run through it. 16 and 56, just a few years later, 21 of the members of Newport pulled out, and they were led uh, by a, name, a man by the name of uh, William Vaughn, B-A-U-G-H-N. William Vaughn was a preacher, and he and 20 other of the members pulled out of Newport, and they organized the very first Dollar Church of Newport, and they organized it right there in Newport. So this was the first Dollar Church of Newport, 1656. After that, uh, William Vaughn, he pastored that church until he died, which was 1677. So 1677, he passed away. When he did, another preacher came in by the name of John Baker in 1677, and he pastored the church just a few years, and then he left this second Newport church. He left it after he pastored just a few years, and he went to North Kingston, which was just 11 miles down the road, and he established the North Kingston Baptist Church still in Rhode Island. Now, the road that's Newport, and I know this is hard to keep up with, but this church of New, uh, the church of North Kingston, it was organized in the 1680s. There's no definite date, but 1680s. It then was the granddaughter of the very first church in America, right? It was out of the second Newport, the second Newport was out of the first Newport. So North Kingston is now the granddaughter of the first church in America. There was a there was a young man that was baptized in his youth in this second uh, the second Newport church by the name of Valentine Whitman. He moved his membership to North Kingston, which like I said was 11 miles down the road. He moved his membership there. This young man, Valentine Whitman, he grew up then in that church. And in 1702, he got married, and he married the granddaughter of Obadiah Holmes. And it is really, really hard for me not to get into Obadiah Holmes, if you could just know anything about what that man went through. But nevertheless, Valentine Whitman married the granddaughter of Obadiah Holmes. Her name was Susanna. They got married in 1702. 1705, three years later, Valentine Whitman and his wife moved over to Groton, Connecticut, about 50 miles. When they moved over there, they organized a church there in Groton, Connecticut in 1705. And that church, Groton, was the very first Baptist church uh, in, in Connecticut. Very first Baptist church, 1705. First church in Connecticut. Out of it, uh, Valentine Whitman, very, very soon afterwards, he baptized a young boy at 10 years old into the church. That boy's name was Wade Palmer. And Wade Palmer was baptized in Groton Baptist Church when he was 10 years old. He grew up in that church. And in 1743, in the meantime, he had been called to preach. And in 1743, they ordained Wake Palmer. After they ordained him, he went into North Stonington and he organized the North Stonington Baptist Church. What I'm going to do, I, I'm going I, I should have brought some, I'll bring some outlines up here and Brother Benji can hand them out. Because I know y'all can't keep up with all this, but I'll bring you some outlines for you today. So he can hand them out next week. But this is this is so Barlini's. North Stonington Baptist Church uh, was organized by White Palmer in 1743. He went on, and in that church, he was going to baptize a man. I wish I mentioned this man's name when we started, but if you've ever read anything about church history, you've read about Shubal Stern. In this North Stonington church, and that's the second church in Connecticut, White Palmer baptized. Shubal Stearns. Shubal Stearns then uh, uh, he was influenced by White Palmer. 
and Jim was served before he before he was baptized in Baptist. He was a congregational preacher. He's preaching about infant baptism because he'd been taught that. He come to the conviction that infant baptism that he had received before he become a Baptist or, or before he got saved, he come to the conclusion that that didn't benefit him nothing. He still had to be saved. And he got to questioning that, and then he run in to this man by the name of Wade Palmer, and they got to talking, and Wade Palmer convinced him of only a believer's baptism to the point that he was willing to be baptized in the North Stonington and become a Baptist preacher. He, Shubal Stearns, left from, from North Stonington in 1754, and he went down to Opekin Baptist Church. Now, Opekin was in Virginia, and it's West Virginia today, and I've been there too. But Shubal uh, Stearns, and he, he, he had a burden from the Lord to, to go south. And when he, when, he left, uh, when he left Connecticut, he went and he stopped off at Opekin, or Mills Creek Baptist Church, and what it was, his brother-in-law and sister was members of the old Peckin down in Virginia. His brother-in-law's name was Daniel Marshall. Daniel Marshall was a preacher of the old Peckin church. When Shubal Stearns arrived in old Peckin, his brother-in-law was out on a mission trip preaching to the Indians. Shubal Stearns tarried there and he waited until Daniel Marshall come back. And the way that, that I've come up with it, Shubal Stearns was there for four months. After four months, him and Marshall and his whole family, they all picked up, they went on down south, and they got down to Randolph, uh, uh, North Carolina, and it was there that the Sandy Creek uh, Separate Baptist Church was organized in 1755. Sandy Creek is the mother church to just most all Baptist churches anywhere. It is. It, it, it just... Uh, hard to get a hold of it, but most all of our churches come through the Sandy Creek Baptist Church. The only question that, that a lot of people have is when Shubal Stearns had stopped off at Opekin, did he come under their authority? If he didn't come under their authority, Sandy Creek was organized to the authority of North Stonington in Connecticut. If he did come under their authority, in other words, join, join, join up with them, if he did, then they would have come through Opekin's authority. And Opekin goes back uh, back through Great Valley up in Pennsylvania and goes over to, to Wales and Red Wheel. So I'm not going to argue that one with anybody. But I did, I was able to talk to a guy there in, in Virginia at Opekin that actually had access to some of the minutes. And through that, I drew my conclusion. But uh, I, like I said, I wouldn't argue with nobody. But but uh, I'll talk to you about that word. But I guess I, I think I personally believe that our lineage goes back through Connecticut. Uh, so like I said, I, I wouldn't argue with nobody because it's history. It could be right or it could be wrong. But uh, out of out of when you get down to uh, Sandy Creek, she was turned baptized. Many, many different ones that become preachers. And I'm not sure about Lafayette, but you probably, most of the churches around here come through Liberty, down here. Liberty Missionary Baptist, 1822, I think it did. Most churches around here come through come through that that uh, avenue, if you would. Uh, I think she will start baptized uh, Newton, Newton Lane, which was Titus Lane's brother. Newton Lane organized Dan, Dan River, and he organized uh, Upper Spontavania. Upper Spotsylvania under uh, Lewis Craig moved over to Kentucky, uh, get Garrett's Creek and all the way down and comes back down here somehow to uh, uh, Dixon Creek and now Dixon Creek somehow on over to Liberty. So most of our churches come out of Liberty. Hilltop was an exception. And there's, there's several others. But Tubal Stearns not only baptized Newton uh, Lane and a, a lot of others, but he also baptized a man by the name of Philip Mulkey. There were five of them Mulkeys. Two of them were Philip, so it really gets confusing, but keep it all short. Shubal Stearns baptized Philip Mulkey. Philip Mulkey organized the church Deep River. Deep River went under. They moved. They organized Deep Creek. Deep Creek moved it. Uh, 
uh, they, they organized a church by the name of Fire Force in 1662. And it was a separate Baptist church. Then in 17, I, I, I meant 17, 1762. 1779, Bulk Creek Baptist Church in South Carolina, just a few miles away, was organized as a separate Baptist. Bulk Creek lost all of their records in a fire. They, they, I've been there two different times and talked to different ones. They believe that they come out of Fire Force, which was a separate Baptist church. And the time frame uh, in the area, uh, most historians say that, that it probably did come out of, out of that church. But Buck Creek was organized as a separate Baptist. So Buck Creek definitely come indirectly out of Sandy Creek. And Buck Creek then goes on, and uh, they have a man by the name of John Hightower. And John Hightower, um, he actually uh, travels over to um, what we call now Nashville. Have y'all ever seen these road signs, Avery Trace, um, the Avery Trace Trail? That was completed in 18, um, 1787. So just real soon after that, 1795, John Hightower leaves South Carolina, comes over to what we call Nashville, went north up into Warren County. And when he went up into uh, then like I said, this is Hilltops. But uh, he organized a little church up there that was first called Trammell Fork. And then they changed the name of it to Union. And then they changed the name of it to what we today know as Old Union Missionary Baptist Church. And Old Union organized uh, Bethlehem. Bethlehem organized this one, this one, this one, this one. And we get out here to Portland, Maple Grove number three, 1951. Maple Grove number three, not number two, Maple Grove number three, over here next to Portland on 52, was organized in 1951. 1983, they extended an arm over here between Lafayette and Red Bull and Springs on top of the hill and organized a little church over there that has turned my life right side up, Hilltop Missionary Baptist Church. That is our lineage at Hilltop, the best that I can tell. And like I said, I wouldn't argue with nobody because it's history. But it's pretty clear to me. But uh, I'm thankful for the heritage. And I know I know this is way too much for y'all to grasp. And I will I will make some outlines for those of you that's interested and, and then give the references as well. So, uh, but, but church, uh, be thankful for what you got. Uh, um, I think it was Moses that said, said over there one time, he said, he said, consider the years of many generations. And he said, ask thy fathers and he will tell thee, and thy elders and they will show thee. Um, we, I'm glad that David Benedict and Cathcart and some of those old historians, I went to Jerry Reynolds one time when I first got interested in history. And I said, Brother Reynolds, I said, uh, man, I, I, try to, I try to understand this history. And I said, there's so much out there and I don't know. I said, would you, would you just uh, write down some good history for me? And he got tickled and he said, Brother Broner, he said, history is like digging through a trash can. He said, most history is sour. But he said, every now and then you'll find a jewel. And I'm thankful for people like Jerry Reynolds that has studied a lot of history. And when he comes across something bad, he's got, a, he's got this little, uh, little skull thing stamper and he stamps it rotten but brother Jerry Reynolds had, had Mark wrote down some good books for me to get started with what where my concern was at and, and I'm glad that there is some good history uh, they may can't speak to us now in the sense of speaking you know what, what you know over in the faith chapter talked about Cain and Abel and how Abel had offered a more excellent sacrifice than Cain and it said Abel being dead yet speaketh how does Abel speak through the Bible Abel being dead, but yet he said, well, history is history. It ain't Bible. But through good history, they can still speak to us today. They can still speak to, to us today. So I would pray that not only young preachers, but I pray that young people would get interested in history. And I tell you what, once you, once you grab the hold of you, you'll find yourself spending a lot of money on history books. I, I'm constantly finding the book that I've got to have. I've got to have this and I've got to have that but. 
but to me history is rich. I, I do apologize uh, for the length of time, but I still say that it's got to be Sister Kim or David One that y'all look to for that, okay? It would be Kim. <laughs> There's a dad. All right, I'll, uh, again, I, I appreciate your attention, appreciate this opportunity. Um, I did bring this. I want to just barely show you this. When we made our, when we made our trip, it was our third, third uh, historical trip, we went to a lot of places. We went up, up there to uh, um, Plymouth Rock, where the 16 and 20, the Mayflower came over. They went to Baptist only. I didn't even think about picking up a souvenir at Plymouth Rock. But when I found the very first Baptist church in America up in Newport, I had to swipe me a little bit of a landmark. So, uh, I, did, I got it without permission, and church, Hilltop then got on to me about it. But people, we are just a piece of the stone. That first church that came over was a piece of the stone. All the churches are pieces of the stone, but we are hewn out of the rock. In Daniel, if you look that word up, mountain, over oh, 2 and 45, where it talks about the little stone that was hewn out of the mountain, you look up that word mountain. You know what the definition of mountain was? It, the, the Hebrew word is uh, tor, T-O-O-R. And the definition for the word mountain over there was, was a rock uh, clothed in earth. And Webster gives the definition as a as a uh, a rock that is elevated above all of the common earth and covered covered with earth, that mountain where the stone was hewed out of was Jesus. When you look in Daniel two forty five, that little stone that was hewed out of the mountain, the stone was the church that fell upon the image that brought it down. Lord used it, but the mountain was the church. The mountain was a rock covered with earth. Jesus is our rock, and he had an earthly tabernacle. And I'm telling you, he is our rock. And I'm glad he is. Rock of all ages. So I just admonish the church to hang on. So I'll turn it back over to Brother Benjamin.